conversations to give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, as if we never left, it's the Black Psychologist Podcast, also known as the eighth wonder of the world. Appreciate everyone being here with us. You could be anywhere else doing anything else, but you're here with us, and we're grateful for that. I am one half of your humble and gracious host, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I, and I am him. And for all of our long-term viewers and listeners, you all know that I'm never here by myself. And it is an absolute honor and pleasure to be here with a clinician of his caliber flying this aircraft with me, the undefeated, undisputed champion of the world, Dr. Jason Coleman. What's going on, good brother? I don't know about undefeated, but I, you know, I hear I hear you, my man. What's going on, bro? I'm chilling though. You got to wear that 50 and 0, baby. 50 and 0. <laughs> nah, man, I'm good, man. Uh, good weekend, you know, watching some March Madness, of course. We, you know, we was talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Howard made an appearance. We back home now, but we made an appearance, you know. Hey, man, listen, y'all, you guys were, uh, y'all were mixing it up out there for the first half. For the majority man, of the game, man. honestly. Listen, man, don't patronize me, man. We, lo- we lost by 30. Listen, <laughs> anything. <laughs> That's because the game they Kansas did what they started doing later in the game. But y'all was in it. I got like I really have to give y'all credit. And this kind of like correlates to like how the whole March Madness has been. Cause you know, it's been upset after upset. Right. So like it's not like like Kansas, like you guys were in it. I feel like maybe if you guys had probably played like some closer games during the season. And that's the problem I have with the MIAC, right? Not to get go off on a tangent, but the whole issue with the MIAC is they they don't get the opportunity to play against other top tier teams. So the first time when they get to the um to the tournament and they're a 16 seed, you're not really they don't have like those grit games like that experience where you playing against like a premier uh team. So I feel like if they get that on their schedule, and this is like for any HBCU, um, you'll be more prepared when you get to the tournament. But y'all was in there, man. And you saw what happened to Kansas two days later anyway. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying, man. I mean, listen, man, I just think with some of those teams, especially when you're talking about, like, number one seeds, and then, like, the gap, the divide between the talent they're going to be able to recruit and the talent we're going to be able to recruit is, is is wide. But I get the sentiment. I get what you're talking about. Anything can happen. It's much matters. You know? Anything can happen. You, you, you literally don't have to be the better team overall just that day. Right. That's it. So, I know. You're right. You know. But speaking of which, speaking of basketball, right, says March Madness is in full bloom. Uh, there's also going to be playoff basketball, and those standings are going back and forth. They're heating up. So uh, it's only right that we talk about Mr. Ja Morant, all right? So for those individuals that are not familiar with Ja Morant, Ja Morant is an explosive, amazing NBA guard that plays for the Memphis, Br- Memphis Grizzlies. He's, um, I mean, this kid can pretty much do anything. He's like 23 years old, very young, very talented. However, He's been not, you know, he's got himself into a bit of a situation with some of his decision making. So uh, on March 4th, I'm going to try to do a brief timeline of all the different things that um, have come out and some of the uh, incidents that have been unearthed since the major incident. But March 4th, um, he was at a strip club in Denver, right? He they had just played the Denver Nuggets. They lost. So about 2, 3 a.m., he's in Denver. Uh, and he decided to start an Instagram live. And in that video, he was at the strip club and he appears to be holding up or brandishing a firearm or a gun. All right. So, you know, the NBA was not too happy about that. All right. So uh, what ensued and what took place afterwards were a whole host of incidents that had been taking place uh, months prior. So the one most recent prior to that was that there was an issue when he was playing, um, when the Grizzlies were playing the Indiana Pacers. And after he had kind of gotten some, you know, some back and forth trash talk and some other different things. And I think his um, 
his dad had gotten into a shouting match with some of the members of the Pacers, right? Mind you, this is his dad. Right. Um, during the game, as the Pacers bus was leaving, uh, there was like an infrared beam or like a red light beam that was like flashed towards the bus or at the bus right through the window. And so it was coming from the car that John Morant was in. So the NBA investigated. They didn't find anything or it was inconclusive or what have you. So, um, you know, nothing came about that. However, like in most cases, when one incident takes place, you're going to see a whole waterfall of other different incidents that are going to become unearthed or reported or are going to become made known to the general public. So sure. other incidents that took place or that information that came that have come out was that there was an allegation that it took place uh, last summer between Ja and it was a 17 year old that he was playing one on one with. He's playing ball with at his house and something took place where. I don't know if the, it was alleged that the the kid threw the ball at Ja. He didn't catch it. It hit him. Ja punched him. There was a back and forth. And then Ja goes back inside the house and comes back out with a gun in his waistband. Right. That's one incident. There was also an incident where there was an issue at the high school where his, um, his sister goes to. And then there was an incident or something that was taking place. They called Ja and his dad and whoever else came up to the school. There was an alleged there was a weapon involved with that. There was a situation also with um, with Jaw's mom, where she was at like the finish line or a sneaker store at the mall. There was an issue between the mom and the uh, the store manager or one of the employees, and then so she called up John. John, his people's came up, got into it with security. They were making threats, things, things back and forth. Um, and then also last May, while Jaw was playing, while the Grizzlies were playing um, the the uh, this is quite name. Oh, Golden State Warriors. You know, they were trash talking back and forth. Ja was injured through the majority of the, of the series, but you know, there was still some stuff going on back and forth after they were eliminated by the Warriors. Um, there, you know, there were some comments going back and forth on um on Twitter. And so Ja responded with one of the um his comments that were that were aimed at him or the trash talking was it's free to see how hollows feel, right? And these were, you know talking about how bullets and guns and things of that nature. So, um, so yeah, this makes um, a plethora of events and incidents that have been taking place. So more recently, uh, and I'm happy we're reporting on it now because there've been a lot of different, um, the story has continued to evolve. So most recently on um, March 13th, it was reported that Ja was, uh, he had, you know, he stepped away from the team on the 4th, on the 13th, they reported that Ja had entered a counseling program in Florida. Um, and then on the 15th of March, the NBA officially announced that the NBA had suspended him for eight games. And that was including the games that he had stepped away from. So it was kind of like a retroactive or kind of like a time served type of situation. Yeah. Um, and he was actually eligible to come back uh, actually yesterday against the Mavs. But he didn't. Um, he just sat the bench. But he was available or he was um you know, sitting there with the team. What also came out was last week was there was an interview with Jalen Rose that, that um, John Morant did. And he talked about uh, some of the incidents in question. And, um, you know, Jalen Rose asked him about some of the incidents and took place. So there's some of the experts, I mean, the excerpts from what John's responses were. One of his uh, responses was, honestly, I feel like we put ourselves in that situation with our past mistakes. And now it's only right that we focus in and lock in on being smarter and more responsible, holding each other uh, more accountable for everything. So he was referring to his inner circle. So I imagine he's talking about, you know, himself, his family, um, I guess some of his close friends, other people that he rolled with. And he taught, he said that the gun that he displayed at, in the video wasn't his, but he didn't specify uh, who it belonged to and how it ended up in his hands. He said, it's not who I am. I don't condone it or any type of violence, uh, but I take full responsibility for my actions. I made a bad mistake. I can see the image that I painted of myself with my recent mistakes, but in the future, I'm going to show who Ja really is and what I'm about and change this narrative that everyone got or that everybody got. All right. So that's pretty much the uh, summation of the interview. Um. Jay, for me, especially as this has unfolded, you had a lot of different um, point of views and opinions from analysts of every sport 
sporting show platform or what have you. Um, and there was like a lot of, I feel like biases were that were associated or kind of thrown in his direction. And I mean, what I mean by that is um, it was a situation where people were assuming that job ja was trying to be something that he's not right. They're like, Oh, he comes from a good home. You know, he comes, his parents are involved, you know, in his life, two parent household. He's trying to be a thug. He's trying to be, he's doing this because he's trying to prove something that he's not. Um, and I feel like, if this were a different athlete, right? If this were like Allen Iverson or another NBA player or athlete that had come from like a lower SES background, right? That came from, you know, really humble beginnings or, or like impoverished neighborhood or what have you. I feel like the view or opinions that they would be giving or not giving would be different, right? It would be more of expected like, oh, he comes from this background. So this is what it is. Like he comes from the hood, so this is more acceptable or not acceptable, but this is more to be expected, right? Coming from an individual of his background. But now there's like with Ja, what I noticed is that it was like they were almost kind of throwing him some bail or kind of making excuses. They were associating it more with, oh, well, he's trying to be something that he's not. And, you know, he needs to change the people around him. Like he needs to change his friends and so on and so forth because they're the ones leading him down this path. And for me, it was, well, one, how do you know who or what Jaws like anyway, right? Not to associate like this is a personality issue or anything because I don't know John myself, but we can only make a decision based off of what the incidents that have been taking place and what's been reported. For me, it's like, well, they're making it seem like because he comes from a two-parent household or he comes from middle class or whatever the situation, because he has support, like he can't be, you know, it's not on him that he's doing this type of behavior. Like he's trying to be something that he's not. And it feels like, like you can't be a good, a good kid or come from a good be- background and make impulsive decisions, right. Or make dumb decisions. You I know what I mean? Are, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I, I think it's kind of two different things, right? Because he acknowledged himself. He was making impulsive and poor decisions. Right. right? So I don't think anybody's really debating that. Hey. And I understand your point in saying, like, people were coming down on him extra hard because, again, they're saying that he's perpetrating a lifestyle that he doesn't, that doesn't kind of match up with his background, background, how they're judging it. Now, again, I don't like to speak in absolutes. So there are plenty of people from rural backgrounds, suburban backgrounds, whatever, that get into trouble, make mistakes, and they have problems, right? Exactly. And there are plenty of people... From, from humble beginnings, from the hood, even in the NBA, you look at Giannis, you look at LeBron James that have gotten into no trouble, right? Exactly. So, exactly. So, so again, I'm not, I don't know if you're saying this, but it's holes in the boat already, right? It's not an argument that sustains. But, you know, like I told you when we've talked before, I think that the reason why people are coming down harder on Ja, as opposed to somebody else, is because Ja's life is out there, right? So, again, we know that Ja comes from a two-parent household. We know that he's close with his father, right? We know that his father's out there on the road with him. And whether we like it or not, people have more sympathy for individuals who come from environments where there's less structure. They have more sympathy for them to make a mistake than somebody who has had the structure and is just making a poor choice. That's just how the world works. Now, my, now, is he not entitled to make a poor choice? Absolutely not. But there's going to be less of a rope, right, um, in a lot of people's eyes. Whether it's fair or not is up for debate, you know. Um, but again, I think the bigger issue kind of here is you also seem like a lot of people ridiculing him or kind of, you know, because he, you know, went to therapy, right? Um, and that's kind of the point, again, where I got to take up for him because, a lot of people go to therapy, you know, because they've made poor choices in the past, because they continue to make poor choices day after day. Um, and they want to know why they want to know strategies to improve kind of their life, um, their decision making. He's just on a much higher kind of scale. Right. And there's generational money on the line. And we see him play every week. And we've been seeing the mistakes play out in public. Right. Um, so it's easy to kind of point the finger at him and say, oh, man, he won't. He doesn't learn. Right. Or why is he going to therapy? He's just dumb. Just stop doing it. But 
I mean, anybody listening to us, right? We can look around and we know people or we treat people who are in therapy because they keep choosing the same destructive partner or they keep doing the same toxic behavior or they keep going to that place or associating with those people or making that decision. So people got to be a little humble when it comes to, I think, that part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But again, people are coming down hard on them because, you know, uh, we've talked about this as this issue has, has, you know, kind of unfolded. His father is out there on the road with him, right? So the expectation that people are going to have when your dad is out on the road with you, not saying he's with you 24-7, is that there's going to be a positive influence there, right? Um, And the evidence that there might not be a positive influence, I don't know the man, is that, you know, in the reports, his mom has an issue at the mall, she calls him to come handle, right? His sister has an issue at the high school, dad comes with him to come handle it and walk off. So it's like, there's no reports of the parents trying to like, you know, be a calming influence in none of these instances. So, and again, none of us are there, but. And dad seemed like he was the antagonist. Right. It kind of seems like, and we, and it's like, it's not out of, out of the realm of possibility or crazy to assume that because we saw dad on live TV start a fight with Shannon Sharp that that they have nothing to do with him. Right. Right. So, um. You know, it's fair to assume if you want to that the whole family is kind of making, you know, poor choices or, you know, <laughs> at least has been. So, um, you know, and he's their their child. So it's fair. So he's probably learned from them. and He's following them. And he's the leader now. <laughs> so um, you see why you have all these problems. I would be interested to to know or I just wonder if in addition to him. Right him getting therapy because again he's John Morant and he has to unfortunately he has to be taking accountability for the decision that he's making but I'm wondering because there's an environmental or system aspect of it right like you just you just touched on it where is the family getting therapy for the reason that okay because clearly and what takes place in some of these situations where all right you have the family that was you know getting the kid to practice because so much goes into it right that's another element that gets left out of so much gets gets put into and investing into your child when you see the talent there getting them to practice aau traveling all these other different things working out training blah 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 blah. but what once the kid makes it right it's almost sometimes we've seen that the roles you know become reversed where as opposed to now before the kid was you know was being taken care of by the parents now they're the caretaker Right. Right. They're responsible for all the money and they start calling the shots. So now it's like, okay, well, because you're sponsoring all of this endeavor, our traveling, our lifestyle, our newfound fortune and so on and so forth. We've seen situations where, you know, the parents, unfortunately, are now serving the kid. Right. They're no longer. And again, you're an adult. The person gets to make these decisions. But there's still, again, that balance. There's still that respect. There's still that aspect. Right. There's still a, a healthy system you know, family system dynamic that's, or should be, I should say, still be upheld. But a lot of times that gets dismissed, right? You have these enmeshed relationships or you have the situation where now the athlete or the kid is taking care of everybody that's calling the shots and, you know, they kind of pacify him and so on and so forth, right? So I would be interested to see just because of how we've seen dad, you know, um, behave in public on camera and mom is, is calling the, you know, the golden goose to come up here and handle situations. I'm wondering if they're all getting treatment, right? That would be my interest. Well, I feel like that would be a healthy situation. Well, if that's a serious question, let me answer that for you. No. <laughs> you're out of your mind. Come on, man. That's not a serious question. Listen, you're we're basically asking if they're going to get therapy to rein themselves in after they hit the lottery. No. The only no. reason why he he's going to do the 20 sessions that are mandated by the league and that'll be that, you know, I mean, bro, I would love to say, you know, I thought it was sincere and he's going to be invested in all that, but I mean, uh, listen, maybe he'll be invested in self-improvement and that's enough. You know what I mean? But to really think that he's seriously going to be diving into like these issues. I mean, you know, he's concerned about his bag, bro. Absolutely. And here's the other part of it, right? 
It's the other like, environmental piece have you ever, is... I'm to cut you off. Have you ever done anger management groups where they got to do 13 weeks? Yeah, man. Yeah, the mandatory groups, court court right. management. Yeah, right. Or like the batterers groups, where it's like fourteen weeks, mm-hmm. and yep. they they'll spend ten weeks telling you how they ain't do it. Yep, ten weeks, bro, because they're trying to get us. Oh. Ten- so yeah. my, I wasn't trying to interrupt you. No, they make deals. Also, try to get out of it. See if you can sign stuff too. They do. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, it gets wild. Um, no, the environmental piece that I feel like also doesn't get highlighted enough. I think that sometimes contributes to some of this type of behavior that we noticed right after the incident with um, with the gun. Right. He tried to delete the post. Of course, you can't delete anything. That's in everything exists forever in the cloud or wherever. Right. Somebody saw it. They screenshot it. It gets out. So then we started seeing a whole waterfall of other different incidents. Right. That had become back that a lot of people weren't aware of. And that's the thing where. These incidents, right, there's been a commonality that's been in there. It's been jaw and a gun, jaw and aggression, jaw, you know, fighting or whatever the situation is. However, the NBA, which knows everything, right, the NBA is made aware of everything. His team that works with the NBA, the security, they know everything, right? We, we know how this works. And they also spend a lot of time and money keeping these things, you know, out of the public eye due to whatever means that they need to. But once one thing comes out, you know the reporters, you know the media, everybody's going to start digging. And so the fact is, when the league or the NBA or the team or whoever cover these things up, now all of a sudden you know and I know that it reinforces that behavior. Because now not only am I getting away with it, right? It's not getting out. It's a desired you know, result that takes place from someone acting inappropriately or impulsively. So now guess what? You know that that behavior is more likely to occur more frequently in the future because the person's not getting, there's no intervention, right? There's no reprimand, there's no any of these other different things. So the fact that all of these events and things are coming out, it seems new, but some of these things were happening last summer. And I imagine there's other stuff, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm sure there were other things that took place before that the league was covering up, maybe college, whatever, but this also kind of perpetuates or reinforces this behavior. So that that's another issue that goes forward. I mean, listen, I, you know, I wish him luck. Um, but, you know, again, I, I just hope that, you know, whatever, in whatever time he kind of spends talking to somebody or talking to his parents or whoever, um, that he just gets in his mind that, you know, he's going to mess up the generational wealth. Yeah, I just think I just think the odds of him doing a deep dive into like why this behavior is occurring is slim to none. So that's all I'm gonna say. Yeah. We'll see. All right. Speaking of terrible decisions, all right. So Jay, we were just talking about the mighty HU, all right, and there's uh, there's some stuff going on over there, some issues, all right. So. A former uh, white law student is suing Howard University's law school, uh, alleging racial discrimination after classmates allegedly called him Mayo King and some other different, excuse me, some other different, you know, uh, racially biased or racially slurred names. And he makes a slew of other claims after he was expelled. So I'm going to try to make this as brief, right? So he launched an 11 account lawsuit. Um, he was enrolled in fall of 2020 on a scholarship, and he, he's arguing that he faced discrimination on a scale none of his classmates likely have ever experienced. After he made comments about the black community that his, cl- that his classmates found offensive. All right, so it all started when in a class group me uh, where he said he was part of the black community is where or what he said is that. He says that the black community believes that the government issue solves problems and he sees it only that they are they're causing problems. He said that he wanted to discuss the issue or his, you know, his comments and statements further um, on whether black voters didn't question turning on to government for solutions and reliably voting on the same party every election to incentivize both parties from responding to the needs of black communities, right? So he said that some students engaged with him about his comments, while others reacted very uh, in a less than favorable manner. He said he was removed from the student run group me chat. Um, he said that around the same time that uh, he made a, um, a comment in the class Zoom chat comparing himself to he was comparing himself as a Caucasian student at Howard Law to an African-American student at a primarily white university. He said that he. Um, 
had attempted to try to persuade his students and try to get his point across. It even escalated where he had shared a series of letters with his peers, wherein that he called into question to some of his classmates' claims of past racist-based harassment at other universities. He also shared a link. All right, listen to Jay, listen to this. He shared a link of, of the Uncle Tom documentary by right-wing commentary of conservative Larry Elder. And it appears like some of his classmates had discovered tweets from which he had posted like a uh, historic photo of a whipped slave with the comment, but we don't know what he did before the picture was taken, talking about what the slave might have done before he was being whipped, right? So, of course, this is not well-received by his peers or the, uh, the Howard administrators. And, you know, he had gone back and forth, still trying to get his point across. He's having all these conversations with, um, with the administration. By August 2021, he was told that his academic scholarship had been revoked. And and says that uh, he was contested because they said administrators, it was due to his poor performance. So he's alleging that all of this is resultly directly from mental anguish costing from or being caused by a hostile education environment and arising from racial discrimination, which the administrators that he says were knowingly allowed. Um, he appealed this situation. Unfortunately, he lost, right? And after... You know, he kept going back and forth with the vice affairs, with the president, so on and so forth. And they even said, like, throughout the whole process and even during the appeal process, he showed no contrition. Right. This is what the administrators were saying. Um, he was expelled in 2022. And now his lawyers are trying to prove that the school broke its, its contract with him. A lot to unpack there. I would also encourage anyone that's not aware or not familiar with this um, with this situation for them to read in its entirety. I try my best to give like a brief summation of the thing, but there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so Jay, as a proud HU alum, what, what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, listen, I mean, it's really like a joke if we're being honest. Like, um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what the discrepancy is. I was trying to look it up while we were talking, but I read some articles that said he had lawyers, some articles that said he was representing himself, mm-hmm. right? Um, if he was representing himself, I wouldn't be surprised, right? Because again, we're talking about Howard University established in 1867, the oldest HBCU law school in the country, one of the oldest law schools in the country, some of the most prestigious lawyers and judges in this, that have served this country have gone through this school. This person was obviously, you know, was not taking advantage, you know, um, of the fortune of the fortunate position he had to be there, right? And it seems like he used every opportunity to kind of create a hostile environment to, for himself, right? Because what Howard University Law School and Howard I mean, I haven't been there, but what Howard University environment is not is like a monolithic kind of place, right? So it's like you have Democrats, Republicans, independents, you got people that are represented all over the world, you know, uh, uh, whether it be rural communities, you know, suburban communities. So it's all different type of mindsets, right? So you can't come with the old playbook that I'm a white guy and the black people discriminated against me. And that's kind of what he tried to use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at um, the things that he was doing, right, the comments that he was posting would offend any any of his class, you know, cohort or classmates. Depend, it, it wouldn't matter what school he went to, right? Um, and they reported that that's the kind of the counsel that he received when he reached out to the administrators. You know, is that you know you're kind of um, disassociating yourself, you know, by the comments and the things that you're, you're saying and doing. Um, and especially, listen, when we look at the things like the picture of the slave, you know, um, posting stuff in the class chat, where I part with the Black community is that where, where they believe that government solves problems, I see it as causing problems, where they believe, right? So what do you think is going to happen after that? You understand? I'm like, like, listen, there's a tone that you strike, you know, that you know is going to alienate you from the student body and from the school as a whole. 
right? So let's not play these games. You understand? You know there's schools around the country. If you went to, you know what they you you know what they stand for. You know what their traditions are, and you know if you come in that environment with a certain amount of disrespect and extreme views, right? You're gonna get put out of there, right? And you're gonna be alienated. Mm-hmm. And this is what it led to. And but I think what people shouldn't lose the fact that people shouldn't lose and what people should focus on is that this is a guy who created a hostile environment for himself then tried to make a mockery of mental health and say that the other students caused him to have depression and anxiety when in reality okay he just couldn't make it at one of the most prestigious law law schools right because if he had filed this lawsuit and he was in the top of his class then we would all be he would have a, a leg to stand on Right. But from what they said, he was in the bottom of the class anyway. So academic performance. That's one thing that they want to leave out of these articles is that that's one standard that you're going to find on Howard University campus is excellence. There's a standard. And obviously he wasn't meeting it. Right. Because they want to be sure that when you leave there, you're representing them no matter what country, coast, city you go to. And obviously he wasn't meeting, you know, the standard. So first and foremost, for me, um, I hope that the alleged, you know, name calling Mayo King or or whatever that, you know, he's alleging that it's his peers or, or the other students called. I hope that's not true. Just for the reason that one it's wrong. Right. Uh, I don't care what the color, what target, what racial undertone or underlying slur like that's wrong across the board. And especially in a situation like this, for the reason that if that is true, it gives it merit, right? It gives his case, it gives it, you know, more credence where apparently in this situation, it doesn't seem like there's much or that, you know, one that he's trying to create. Uh, So I hope that aspect of his allegations aren't true. Um, The question I kept asking myself as I was reading through the articles was, all right, what's the motive, right? Like what's there has to be to me, there was like a secondary gain. Or is it like a smokescreen for the reason that, and you just kind of touched on it a little bit, was that, all right, well, he's at the bottom of his class. He seems to he appears to be struggling academically. Right. So you got you got the scholarship. And in order for you to maintain that scholarship, you have to, you know, maintain a certain GPA, maintain a certain type of threshold of academia. And it appears that he wasn't doing that. So it's like, okay, what do I do now? All right, let's call the ruckus, right? Because it seems like, you know, he there was an agenda here. It's like, you're going to continue to force down and, you know, get across your perspective that you can very well see that other people aren't reacting well to, right? But you continue to these different links and comments and so on and so forth. So you can continue to ostracize yourself from the group. And so it's like, okay, let me see if I can, you know, invigorate as much different hatred or, emotion that they can direct at me right that's at least the way it was coming across for me or at least the way that it appears and that he's still trying to force feed his agenda or his comments or his opinion or perspective or what have you so they can get that negative reaction from them so it's like oh well, do you see what they're doing right do you, you see what they're doing they're doing this they're discriminating against me i'm just trying to get my purpose and just the whole just externalizing blame all over the place right just I because mean, listen, you're not holding up your part of the end of the bargain as far as your academic situation listen you can't he intentionally that that's why it's going to have no legs because he intentionally was doing things to aggravate them right like okay so and it and and it's obvious, right? So when you look at the picture, he posted the picture of the whip slave. He said, "Okay, we don't know what he did before the picture was taken." And then his response to posting it was, "He was trying to be ironic." All right? So you know where you're at. You know the environment you're at. And if you post something like that, the reaction that you're going to get from your peers, right? Because there wasn't any administrative discipline for that. But if you post something like that. On Howard University's campus, you can kiss your relationships with the students goodbye, right? If I if I went to Yeshiva University and posted things that were insensitive to the values of that university, I could not expect to have strong relationships with my cohort, right? So there you go, 
and he got mad about it. And then on top of that, he was not a good student and he was fouled. So, I mean... I'm not sure how much research he's done. I mean, for him to be a law student, I would think he would be more or, you know, kind of more in tune with um, how this kind of goes for the reason that he's not the first person that's, you know, played the race card in regards to um, trying to sue Howard University. He's done this in the past and it wasn't successful, right? right? Like previous situations, it did well. So I'm kind of wondering, I mean, again, I'm no law student. I'm absolutely going to stick to my scope of practice and my areas of strength. However, it just appears that like I like have you are you not looking at the track record? Like that's that's gotta be covered. Like, bro, what, what are we doing too, here? Not too smart, bro. You know? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we'll continue to see how this unfolds. Um, but like you said, it doesn't seem like there's much merit or it's gonna go too far. But I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, it's unfortunate that Howard gets dragged through this though, right? Because the the as we've seen, like all the different articles, it it literally starts, and of course, it's got to be any article or a headline has to catch you, right? So it draws viewers and, and readers in. But it's like white students sues Howard University, and that's like the main thing you take away, and so they can get the read, so we can get the the views and such. Um, and it's unfortunate, man, for that. So then they have to kind of go through this, and now they have to spend resources and money and so on and so on time just to defend themselves against things like this. Um, so, um, but. Hey man, uh, ah, it's just I don't know, I don't know. Speechless, I, really, I, I don't, I don't get it. That's gonna be one to follow, man. You know, see how it will be. Up. All right. Speaking of childish behavior, all right, moving right along. There have been more children, Jay, getting sick from inadvertently eating marijuana edibles, according to a study that was published a couple of weeks ago in the Journal of Pediatrics. Okay. So there have been calls to the poison control centers that about that kids five and under are consuming edibles containing THC rose from 207 cases in 2017 to 3,054 in 2021. All right, that's a, that's a 1,375% increase. Yeah, that's uh, a lot. Yeah. And nearly all the children, about 97%, found the edibles at home someplace. So um, the combination, this is uh, one in a, uh, an assistant professor in emergency medicine at uh, the University and Medical Center in Chicago, says the combination of more states legalizing recreational marijuana and with the coronavirus, especially during the pandemic, um, meant that more children were staying at home and most likely kind of drove the increase um, in cases. And he says, um, also, I uh, think the pattern, and there's a physician down at, at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and says, I think that the pattern that we're seeing is well represented. He says that a lot of physicians across the country have been recognizing uh, what they believe to be like a sharp increase in both young children and teenagers showing up in emergency departments for THC intoxication. Um, I'll say this, this is a very interesting article, Jay. Um, the thing that stood out to me when I was reading more about it and I was looking up some of these, um, about some of these edibles, like the packages look like candy or like, like cookies. And they're like, they have like cartoons, like on the packaging. Like it, it looks very, very strongly close. And it's like that. I can see how it's like a strong appeal to kids because it looks very much like the regular thing. Like, it looks like it's a bag of Cheetos. Like, it looks almost identical to, like, the real thing. They're, like, knockoff Doritos. And, right. and uh, so, and I can see, like, all right, well, if I'm a kid, if I'm five, six years old or, or even younger, like, yeah, I'm going to grab some of these things. Um, however, I, I have to, I got to put more blame. Like, I, I know the physician that we just mentioned is talking about how he blames like, okay, kids were at home around that time due to the pandemic um, and it, due to the legalization. But I got to go in a different direction. Like I totally, I put more emphasis or attribute the rise to be on the home environment. Like where are the parents or the teenagers or whoever, where are they putting them at? Right. They're just leaving them out because it's not like the kids are, you know, going through all these other different means to, to seek these things out. He said five and under. Right. So we're talking about like a pre-operational kind of stage of development 
So they don't have really the mental capacity to be to do all these type of intricate type of things. Like these clearly, these packages are being left out, right? And this is how they're getting to it. It's like very much within reach at their eye level or within you know their arm stretch level. And so like I feel like that's where the issue is, right? The same way how you put your Tylenol and you put like your leave or whatever different prescription medications, you put them in a certain place where the kids can get it. You have to have that same type of level of insight and kind of precaution that you got to put in that. So, yeah, I, I can't ride too much with the, uh, the legalization aspect of it. Well, I mean, listen, I just think this is going to be the this is the next phase that people are going to have to deal with. Right. With legalization um, is kind of like how do you store it? You know, how do you regulate it in your own house? Right. Because most people, when they have liquor cabinets, that's down low. Right. Um, for some reason. You know, like you can lock a liquor cabinet, you know, it's usually not unless you got one of those carts, you know, you got to like open a drawer, do something to get to it. Mm -hmm. Edibles, man, like they look like Reese's cups. They can look like popcorn. They can look like um, Twizzlers, you know. So if it's out and it's accessible, I think it's more kind of prone to like accidental, you know, kids accidentally ingesting it. Right. Because I don't know, we just speculating, but I doubt majority of these cases are parents giving their kids edibles right um and i doubt that majority of these cases are kids some of them are but not kids stealing the edibles and taking them to school and doing them with their friends a lot of these cases are probably parents leaving stuff on the counter leaving it around mm-hmm. and you know the kid or somebody else giving it to them thinking it's a regular it's candy and then they got to call the poison line or whatever you know how go, right um so i think it's going to be more of you know, like we were talking about before, like the same way people look at like liquor and weapons, like how you got to lock it up and prescription pills and all of that. Um, you know, you got to you got to lock up the edibles. You know what I mean? I mean, it's legal. Yeah. Right. But I think that's kind of one of the next steps, you know, that people, you know, have to think about at this point. So people shouldn't be ashamed if they're responsibly using them, consuming them. That's your business. That's what's up. Enjoy it. But you got to, you know, look at that, that next step too, right? How we can protect the kids from it. So. Yeah. It's it. gotta be, it's gotta be um, an increase in responsibility. Like I, I, I'll throw a little bit. Okay. If you make the packages less appealing, right. Maybe you should just put it like in a white bag or brown bag or so on and so forth. Maybe. Right. I get it. Like, okay. Oh, it's not gummies. It's not, you know, Tony, the tiger is not sitting on it. Like, okay. Like <laughs> so that, that may discourage them a little bit at the same time, when you have a four or five-year-old and they're hungry and they're just roaming around and you just kind of sitting there letting them do their thing. And we're all guilty of it. Right. As a parent, like we're not, I'm not going to sit here and say like, you have to keep eyes on your kid 24 seven, because that is damn near impossible. You have a four or five-year-old, he's walking around doing stuff, playing with the dog or whatever. They wander. At the same time, you have to put these precautions in place, right? Whether the bag looks friendly or not, the next level of changing a bag is by, listen, not even making them available to the bag, right? And here's the thing. I'm wondering if there's been an increase with all of these emergencies with kids accidentally, um, you know, ingesting uh, the, the, the edibles. I'm wondering if there's, like, been an increase in uh, social services and, like, DHS diapers. Because, you know, and I know you go to the ER and, you know, they're doing that report. They're like, oh, well, what happened to little Johnny? Oh, Johnny, you know, Johnny and Justin Sutherland. Well, how did he get? Well, bro, like I'm not, I'm not even trying to be funny. Like you said, how many cases was there? 3,000? Uh, 3,054. And that was only in, that was in 2021. Right. So in 2021, you'll see a direct probably relationship between the division calls because they mandated reporters. There's no question about that. Exactly. You know how that goes. You know what I'm saying? It, matter of fact, it won't, it'll be accurate, but not accurate because you might be getting two and three calls on the same case. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It might be the nurse, might be the doctor. Like, you know, because people are not playing when they get that information. Not at all. But, not- you know, I mean, again, it's something that parents are going to have to kind of learn. Like I said, you know, they don't have to be ashamed of using it. That is, it's, it's legal. Enjoy it, but you gotta um, do it responsibly. You know, absolutely. I mean, maybe that'll be the scare tactic, right? Maybe that'll be the uh, the 
because you don't you don't want a call from social services or DHS or diapers or whoever, wherever state that you're in. You don't want that. Like your kid ingested that, you're talking about a whole host of problems. In addition to your kid being sick and being poisoned, a whole host of problems that you do not want as far as if they launch an investigation. That's you don't want those type of problems. You know, so uh we'll see. Yeah, you know, and I might I might do a little extra research on that, Jay, since you mentioned that. You know what I mean? I might go to my check out some numbers and have them for you. You know? Hey man, listen, bro. I'm just saying, like, um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, hospitals, like, they don't play. They call on the hotline like that, you know? So, oh, yeah, absolutely. They do it for alcohol, too. I'll pay right, that. Right, right, right. Be that situation when I was working. I had, you know, we were, we're mandated reporters, so when seeing some stuff come to the ER, bro, I had to make that phone call, unfortunately. Um, all right, Jay, before we get out of here, right? So people have always craved as far as I can post deaf contact with their loved ones. Right. Um, you know, people go through different measures and efforts to try to remain in touch with those that have passed on. And, you know, people do eons, they'll do like, uh, the whole, um, photographs as far as like with their, their deceased children or loved ones in their, in their wallets. They'll have seances. They'll, you know, some people in some cultures have even kept like the corpse, like either in the backyard, in the house, you know, they, they cremate them, all different types of situations, depending on culture. However, artificial intelligence and virtual reality, along with other technological advances, have taken a huge step closer to bringing the actual deceased person back to life. All right. You ready for this, Jeff? All right. Listen. So in 2020, there was a Korean documentary. Uh, and the team invited on its show a mother that had lost her seven-year-old daughter due to an incurable disease. So the girl's death was uh, unfortunately very sudden, and she had died a week after being diagnosed in 2016. So the mom unfortunately didn't have a chance to say goodbye. And for three years following, she was obsessed with the loss of her daughter. So the producers of the documentary called Meeting You uh, created a digitized recreation of the child that the mother could see through a virtual reality headset. Um, and on the show, like the virtual girl like appears from like behind like a little wooden pile and runs towards the mother calling her mom. Mom burst into tears and said, oh, I missed you so much. The video was showed on online and it reportedly had 19 million views. All right. So while the mom said the experience was painful, the mother also said that she would do it again if she could and said she finally was able to receive a chance to say goodbye. So the platform is called Augmented Eternity, in which it allows someone to create a digital persona from a dead person's photos, text, emails, social media posts, public statements, blog, blog entries, and all of that will enable um, the person to interact with relatives and others. Um, this is similar to what Amazon unveiled in June of last year. So they unveiled a new feature featuring, uh, that it was developing for Alexa in which the virtual assistant can read aloud stories from a deceased loved one's voice just after kind of hearing one, one minute of that person's speech. Um, so uh, this is a lot. Um, it is that you know i had some kind of mixed um you know kind of opinions on this uh jay as you were reading about this what, what was uh what were your thoughts about it i mean listen man you know how could you not have mixed feelings about this one right um i mean listen first of all it looked the pictures of like the video with the woman seeing you know her daughter and all of that that interaction mm -hmm. um it looked realistic right um obviously the benefits is like people who are dealing with grief and loss bereavement um it can offer them an opportunity to say goodbye um people that have never met relatives it might offer them an opportunity to say hello right in either in either case for some people it might help them in therapy through a difficult time right or with closure right so that's the good part um, but then you have all these challenges, right? 
And the first thing that keeps on coming to my mind is like, um, debriefing is going to be important and information up front is going to be important, right? Because, you know, we don't know how everybody's going to react. People might not be able to let go. How does this work, right? Do you see, do you, does your counselor have control over it? Do you come do these, do these sessions or do this interaction with your counselor? And if you lie, if, if you have a four day treatment or a two day treatment, what if the person calls you back the next week, month, year and says, I want to uh, see the person again, right? But they don't have no insurance, but they don't have no money, but, or if you don't have that technology anymore, who, who controls it? You know what I mean? Who stores mm-hmm. it? Right. It's just a lot of um, pros and cons, right? Um, because you can't have a situation where a therapist is telling a person, I mean, you can, but it'll be a difficult situation where a therapist is telling a person, listen, you can't talk to your wife or husband. Treatment is over. Or you don't have no more insurance. I can't see you. That might put somebody in danger. You got the video. You have the means to allow me to talk to my loved one. You know, um, and then, you know, to me, I think it kind of will keep people, you know, in a constant kind of state, you know, of like being hopeful that the person is going to, you know, return begging. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it, you know, it's going to prevent them from getting close to kind of acceptance. Right. When we're talking about grief. Um, so I don't know. I got a lot more questions than benefits right now. Yeah, you know, I and that's the aspect that I'm concerned about. At first, I'm when I saw the video and I was reading through the article, I'm like, oh, you know what? That'd be, you know, especially given her situation where we're deaf in her circumstances was sudden, right? So it didn't give her a chance to um really process as much. It was like so sudden, so traumatic. Um and, you know, for her to be able to possibly be able to, like you said, in her um, perspective, be able to say goodbye. Right. So she was able to get provide, get some relief. Uh, so I was like, oh, man, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, it would be cool to maybe hear someone's voice, you know, that passed away. Maybe somebody that you had never met. Maybe you were young and due to like your infantile amnesia. You don't remember. Right. You've only heard you've seen pictures. But but then I was thinking, just like you mentioned how we know that grief is nonlinear, right? You recycle through grief, depending on the individual, depending on the circumstances. And I feel like this could absolutely affect individuals where they could either be in complicated grief or bereavement in the sense of, okay, this person was kind of working their way through the stages of grief. And, you know, they made a depression, they're close to maybe either acceptance and now it's like, oh, well, we have technology where we can bring them back, right, where you can see them. And so maybe then that gets them either stuck or it reverts them back to, you know, the grieving process all over again, maybe at the beginning, right? It gets them back into anger. It gets them back into, you know, the bargaining aspect of things. Um, so I feel like, yeah, absolutely, there have to be some more parameters in something like this. Because for the reason, everybody's in a different place, depending on their grief, depending on who passed away, how it took place, all these other different things. Um, And I feel like also this information or this particular um, invention or endeavor is only going to be available, I think, to a certain population of individuals. So like they said, they need a person's text, they need emails, they need social media posts, public statements, blog entries, so on and so forth. So pretty much things that are technology-based, that's what they need, right? In order for them to be able to create this digital or personality persona for for the deceased. So this is only going to be effective for like millennials, for us, Generation Next, I think that's the next people, right? Um, Or uh, who's who's after it? Generation Next, um, Next, X, whatever. I don't know. Something. Millennials and, 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 and up, it sounds like, right? For the reason that the baby boomers, that information wasn't really available, right? So if you're trying to see someone, grandma, that passed away maybe 10, 20 years ago or so, right? You don't have that much digital information. You might not be able to do that. So I feel like this is 
unfortunately not going to be available to some folks who have passed on previous and they don't, there's not digital information. Um, and I don't know, man, this, this could get for a lack of a better word, this could get real creepy real fast, man. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of this information. Like you said, if you got this, the voice and things that come out, like you said, this person might want to hear that person. Oh, they may not even come to terms with someone's passed away because I got all the information I need from them. Right. I know they didn't I mean, die. They're upstairs. I can turn them all when I want to. And that that's kind of what I was thinking about, right? Especially when we talk about who controls access. When, like when we talk about like economic disparities between people, how much is this going to cost to put together, right? Because we already know, especially when technology comes out, it's our, it's always expensive at first, right? Um, it's more expensive, right? So mm-hmm. when this comes out and it and the technology it costs is five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars per person, or whatever, right? Um, you could see a situation where you got groups of people, you know, who have no access to this because they don't have the capital, and you got groups of people that, like you said, they pull up a computer, they go into a room in their house, and all of the people from the last ten years are surrounding them virtually, and they can talk to them and interact with them. How does that change? Just I don't know. You know, how does that change how you view dying? How does that change how you view living? How does that change how you view relationships? Um, people can literally be stuck in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I think it's interesting, um, and I think in certain situations, I think it can help people, especially some people that have certain blocks, right? Um, but. Uh, you know, I, I I see a lot more roadblocks than benefits right now. It this this could absolutely change the landscape of grieving as we know it for the reason that you start combining how technology is, you know, how one it just evolves so quickly. You remember how they were doing like the holograms? Right. You know, like at the Coachella of like Tupac and all these other different artists that have passed away. They would come I mean, imagine you them combining a hologram with a voice, right, of your loved one who, like you said, had been, was on social media, did videos, so on and so forth, and then you were able to get a hologram of this person. It's almost like this person, it's like that person never left. Like, this could get out of control very fast. Like, I feel like this is absolutely, like, similar to opening Pandora's box. Like, I can, I see how it can be helpful for some people, but I just feel like once it gets, you know, to the mass, people are going to run with it. And this can be very detrimental to a lot of to a lot of individuals and their, you know, their mental health in regards to their grief, because then it gets into the part of, okay, now people are asking questions. They want to have like as as opposed to the, hey, mommy, why are you sad? Why did you leave? I miss you, mommy. Now people want to have more in-depth conversations. Right. How does that go? Asking all these different philosophical questions, like it, Bro. It, like you know how people are people, Jay. Like you know that, like people will ask and start. It'll get deep. It'll get serious, man. Like and yeah, but the, you. I mean, listen, man. Where technology is, these things will be very sophisticated, right? And they'll make them sensitive to the subjects you like and the subject matter that person like. It'll it'll be as similar to the person's personality as possible, you know. Um, if there, if something like this was to become real in that, you know, kind of way, um, that's another way, man. That's another, that's another thing. That's another whole nother realm, bro. Like, yeah. again, as a therapeutic tool, I think for some specific people, it could be beneficial. Right. Um, but I just see too many questions, man. Um, when it comes to access, when it comes to, you know, who's going to control the information. Um, and when it comes to, again, we start talking about like debriefing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and vulnerable populations, you know, it's, it's just a lot of interesting questions, bro. It's a lot of parameters, a lot of questions um, that I feel like would need to be addressed prior to this uh, being available to the general public. So, yeah. no, we'll see. But this, this could get spooky. Very spooky. Very, very fast. Uh, Jay, anything else before we get out of here, man? Nothing much, man. Just want to thank anybody who takes the time to listen. You know, we appreciate it. Um, humble by the support, you know. Um, you know, we're going to continue to keep the content going. 
Um, and that's it, man. We just appreciate it. Please continue to support, you know, Cammy's Closet, you know, and um, shopmentalhealth.com. Absolutely. Another closing donation coming probably at the end of the week that we're going to be working with um, a homeless organization and donating some clothes. So look out for that one. We'll absolutely be uh, posting about that. And um, yeah, that's again, it, it's it's getting warm outside. It was a little cold this weekend, but it's getting warm outside. So you guys need to make sure. All right. Make sure you go to shop mental health closing. OK, so not only so you feel good, so you look good, you know. We're gonna be out there. It's gonna be it's gonna be a nice springtime. It's springtime already. So here we go. That's right. You know? All right, Jay. Until next time. Appreciate it, man. I'll Always, see you. bro. All right, man. Later.